But to pose problems or create the right conditions for intensities to circulate so that individuation and trans-individuation can occur without being short-circuited, we must believe in the body. But as in the germ of life, the seed which splits open the paving stones, which has been preserved and lives on in the holy shroud or the mummy's bandages, and which bears witness to life in this world as it is. This belief in that which is incommunicable, the unthought and the untimely, which is not constrained by the dogmatic image of thought, nor by time in the sense of the present, the eternal or the historical, but is that which acts counter to and thus counteractualizes our time for the benefit of a yet to come, people yet to come, but in the here and now. This acting counter to or counteractualization can be thought of in terms of three non-successive moments. Moments contained in each other, unfolding through each other, or to put it another way, one moment with three aspects. These three aspects can, moreover, be thought of descriptively as part detective novel, part science fiction novel, and part apocalyptic novel. Detective for its posing of problems and concomitant creation of concepts, which themselves change along with the problems through practices of what anarchists have described as prefiguration, or the creation of metastable conditions that allow for individuation and trans-individuation to occur without being short-circuited. Science fiction, for its utopian dimension, the yet to come, an encounter as a here and now, or rather as an error one from which emerges inexhaustibly ever new, differently distributed here's and now's. This is a response to a problem correctly raised at the level of practice, a partial and relative resolution of a disparation tension between two orders, what Stegler might call adoption. And finally, apocalyptic for the throw of the dice, the willing of the eternal return, the secret repetition and the secret of an insistence in all our existence, a universal ungrounding which turns upon itself and causes only the yet to come. The very cause of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is how can This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our guest in today's discussion, we just want to mention we do have a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider tossing us a dollar a month there. But if not, you know, it'd be great if you could perhaps leave us a nice review on iTunes. We appreciate those just as much. Today, Taylor and I are proud to bring you this week's guest, Chantel Gray, who is professor in the School of Philosophy at Northwest University and the co-editor of Deleuze and Anarchism and the author of today's discussion or focus of discussion, Anarchism After Deleuze and Guattari, Fabulating Futures. So Chantel, 
Welcome to the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. We're very excited to dig into your work. This is something that is a nice kind of synergy for me because I kind of started out in this kind of field of post-anarchism as a field of interest many, many years ago. And so I think that's kind of why I'm here and doing this podcast, at least partially. So just wanted to share that with you and welcome you. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. And it's quite interesting to hear that that's your little trajectory. <laughs> so yeah, thanks for sharing. I was telling you, was telling Chantel Taylor a little bit about my background and kind of my my MA in mass communication with an emphasis in social media and kind of how I had actually uncovered Saul Newman's work as a part of a research project. And that's kind of what put me, you know, I, I had some exposure to Derrida and stuff before that, but that really kind of grabbed my attention. So Derrida, not quite famous for being an anarchist. Though, well, right? <laughs> well, I'm just saying like that kind of, I just, yeah. Derrida was before this. The synergy really is, you know, Coop's got this background in anarchism. I mean, he's the one that introduced me to Saul Newman and got me reading a little bit of Scherner, things like this. And, <laughs> and, 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 I, and I think that I brought to Coop this kind of love, incipient love for like Deleuze and Guattari and, and some of these other thinkers. No, <laughs> but the two of us together, we're... We're like the perfect little uh, collective oh, assemblage for hot. this discussion. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's excellent. Yeah, I think it's a post-anarchism is quite an interesting, I mean, it's an interesting little field because it just burst out of nowhere and suddenly a lot of work was being done and now it's also kind of disappeared into Right, nowhere. yeah, I agree. So it was this kind of short little bubble of of stuff happening but I think it was interesting there's a you know a lot of books kind of got written in that time and just you know not only in terms of Deleuze and Guattari but actually just in terms of post-structuralism more generally even thinking with people like Derrida and so on so I think that you know with Todd May actually starting right. that whole trajectory in some ways and yeah. Saul Newman was of course a central figure I think in some ways Thomas Nail has maybe sort of continued that in some way right. in his work on on revolution, returning to revolution and uh, Zapatismo. But yeah, I do think it's, it's sort of disappeared. It's actually a pity for me because I think there's a lot more to uncover. I was just was going to briefly say that I think actually reading Anti-Oedipus for the first time has made me feel like more Marxist than, than before, <laughs> honestly, which I think is kind of ironic. I don't think most people and don't think that, you know what I mean? The hardcore Marxists are like, oh, that's, you know, whatever, and the vice versa, right? Yeah, the Marxists yeah, and the analysts pro probably both look at anti-Oedipus and say, <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> I mean, the thing is that I think it, even anarchists have a, you sort of can't help have a sort of close affinity to Marxism in some way, right? You sort of right. love to hate it. You also, uh, but you also love some of it. And of course, his ideas came from a milieu. I think that's the thing that people sometimes forget. There's such a great film at the moment. I think it's called, but it just shows how, how diffuse anarchism was in society. It was just one of those things, you know. And so, you know, Pradhan, uh, Kropotkin, Bakinen, Marx, they were all thinking about these ideas. And Marx just was the one to kind of synthesize them in a very specific way, you know, and of course he went off in a, or Marxism went off in a specific way, but I, I think that there are a lot of affinities and they can, you know, it continues to be a kind of interesting tension between anarchism and, and Marxism. 
and maybe Deleuze and Guattari for that reason. <laughs> Very true, right. right? Taylor, something you might find interesting about Kropotkin is that he was he was like a naturalist sort of. He was interested in evolution. Yeah. He was sort of a. I think he 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 was a prince. And he abdicated his princehood and like studied science, etc. So I feel like even digging into Kropotkin, he might have some like affinity with Guattari's interest in you know ethology. Right. I want to say that even Kropotkin might have even had some relationship to ethology specifically. But doesn't I he have a? Does he have a book a on while. ecology? Not ethology, but on ecology. Doesn't he have a book on ecology? Am I wrong, Chantel? Maybe you. Know. I'd have to look. Well, the thing that he does write, you know, he writes that that little piece on mutual aid which really okay. is kind of looking at evolutionary biology and thinking about, you know, how these Darwinian ideas and even ideas of social Darwinianism, that kind of teleology is wrong. The idea of, you know, this kind of strong idea of competition is really wrong. And what natural selection really is tied to is cooperation and mutual aid. And so he actually talks about that you know, this is quite long ago. So it's, it's in very interesting ways that he's right. thinking about these ideas in what I think is quite a sophisticated way, you know, challenging these notions that are sort of floating around at that time. And which, of course, has been recuperated by capitalism in a very specific way and continues to kind of be part of the social imaginary. I was going to say, before we get started with the leading question, which we always love to ask, I just think that it's nice if there was a moment when there was this burst of post-anarchist literature coming out. It is nice, though, that, you know, your volume on Deleuze After Anarchism, which you co-edited, I assume with one of your your friends, you seem to have, have an affinity with his work. I forget his name. You can name him Aragorn. for me. Yes, Aragorn. Okay. Aragorn Ilov. Yeah. <laughs> and... Wonderful name, by the way, you know, as a fantasy nerd <laughs> myself, I can't help but think of, but also Deleuze and Guattari after anarchism or anarchism after Deleuze and Guattari. Let me get that right. Which I also want to ask about the title because you mentioned it in the book. But first, Coop, I know you, you like to lead in with this question. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll let you take over. Something we like to start the conversations out with as kind of a warm up is to just get a sense of your, we call it philosophical origin story as if you were some kind of perhaps superhero, but it can be really whatever direction you want to take it in. You know, I was kind of telling you a bit about my background and how that sort of led me here. So, you know, feel free to, if there's a singular moment, you know, a, a book, a thinker, something that just really grabbed you and sort of gave you the, I don't know, that passion for philosophy. And then if you feel like extending that to Deleuze and Guattari, that'd be great. We'd love to hear, you know, whatever you would like to share. Or anarchism. Oh, that's, yeah, right. There you go. <laughs> that works just as well. So my origin story is a little bit promiscuous. <laughs> oh, great. We like that. So I actually started off in art. Okay. I studied fine art. And then uh, I come from sort of a slightly poorer, you know, lower middle class, I would say. So my parents didn't really have uh, money to send me to college or to university. And so I did this first year, I made a lot of debt. <laughs> and then mm. I sort of realized I have to move on, I have to do something else. Mm. So I, I did a lot of jobs, just odd jobs. And then I got, I landed this job at the library at the University of South Africa. And that sort of allowed me to, they're, they're a distance institution, and it allowed me to start studying again. So I studied at night. And I studied everything. I didn't realize <laughs> I didn't realize how much there was. So I was just interested in everything. I started, I went from sort of criminology to psychology to mm -hmm. 
English and I was just all over the place. And then I kind of started studying analytic philosophy because that's what they had. And I really got interested in philosophy of mind. And I was reading, you know, sort of Dennett and Hofstadter and Chalmers, mm-hmm. you know, the, the big guys, Clark and so on. So I liked philosophy of mind, but the rest didn't really kind of, I didn't hit it off with philosophy at that point. So I was also studying, I kind of drifted into linguistics and English and political science. Mm -hmm. So, and then while I was doing my English studies, I discovered the continental philosophers. Um, (laughs) So so, uh, Derrida and Foucault were really big in South Africa. I think Derrida even came to visit South Africa somewhere in the 90s. So there was something, you know, you sort of couldn't miss it. But I guess then I started, because I was in cognitive linguistics, I started reading Barth and uh, Christopher, you know, sort of the more structuralist kind of thought at that point. Then discovered the other woman, Erigere, Sixu, you know, and something started happening for me where I was like, oh, I like this, you know, but there wasn't really a place to study it for me in my undergrad studies. So I just continued reading. I finished my degree. I continued reading. I did my MA actually in cognitive linguistics and continued talking about Christopher, you know, and kind of thought about her, you know, her stuff on intertextuality that really interests me. And then I got really... I sort of became very disillusioned okay. with linguistics, but I didn't know why. I couldn't explain to myself why. Yeah. I just, something about it frustrated me. And then I left academia for okay. a year and a half because I also, I just was working all these different jobs, just wherever I could find in very many different fields. And I opened a vegan restaurant, which wow. <laughs> was a very big mistake. Oh, <laughs> During that time, I discovered anarchism and Deleuze and Guattari. And so I started reading and I really wanted to return to academia, but I didn't have money. So I started applying for grants. And then I got really lucky and I got this three-year grant to do my PhD full-time. And so then I just kind of gave myself over to Deleuze and Guattari. I fell into the cauldron. I drank the cool aid. The witch's room. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And so that's what happened. So even though my uh, PhD has quite a funny title, it's a PhD on Deleuze and Guattari and translation. Yeah, I noticed you had done some work on that. Do you want to say anything about that? Because I'm obviously very interested. So this, again, you know, I get quite, um, I get bored with stuff quite quickly. So that's fair, <laughs> just, that's fair. So I was kind of in translation. I was, I'm very fascinated by translation, especially Mm -hmm. especially literary translations, you know, and how different translations of the same book can be so different and just spark something different. So I was thinking about that and I couldn't find a theory that matched what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, I read Deleuze's, Deleuze and Guattari's chapter on linguistics. And I was like, oh, they're saying that thing that I couldn't say to myself, right. here it is. And so I started understanding something about the order word and, and mm-hmm. these incorporeal transformations, which even you can think of translation as a kind of incorporeal trans- transformation, right? Mm-hmm. In this kind of strange sense. But I started thinking about 
a more nomadic kind of translation, especially taking into consideration my context. We have 11 official languages. You know, how do you grapple with this? How do you, you know, how do you keep the singularity of a book in the translation without, especially when you're translating into a language like English, which is kind of hegemonic in its own way, right? The majoritarian, Um, yeah. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I mean, I love English. It's, you know, there's so much for me in it. So despite it's like strange, hegemonic, majoritarian existence. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I think that's again Deleuze, you know, when you start talking about Proust and the kind of Kafka with Mm -hmm. uh, Guattari and kind of minor uh, languages. So that's kind of where that went. And once I started thinking about that stuff, I, I actually realized, you know, a philosophy is what I love because I'd just been reading more and more philosophy. I also fell in love with Foucault a little bit before that. And then I started just um, reading everything I could find and kind of went a little bit down the French trajectory because, I, well, you know, you can't help it. And I wanted to yeah. read everything that Deleuze and Guattari read. So... <laughs> There wasn't much Simondon, as you know, mm-hmm. until recently, but I just read whatever I could find. You know, I read I read some of the biology stuff that they drew on and just all the sort of secondary resources. And then I just also started reading a whole lot of other philosophy around that, going back a little bit to Bachelard, Canguilhem, and moving forward a little bit. And so... So that's really how I ended up with Deleuze and Guattari. And I think I spend a lot of time because their oeuvres together and separately are so large. I think you can just be a Deleuzean for life or, or a Guattarian <laughs> for life because, yeah. <laughs> because there's so much, right? There's so much there. I'm a little bit, I must say, I'm a little bit at the point where I don't ever want to read Anti-Oedipus or Difference in Repetition or A Thousand Plateaus again. Yeah, <laughs> I, just, I, I understand that. I love those texts, but I also feel like I've read them so many times that sometimes I'm just like, oh, I just, I can't face it anymore. I taught a class on on difference in repetition last year, and I really had to sort of psych myself up, but I I kind of went into the science part more, into the, the maths and all of that. And so that became very interesting for me again. So that's what I mean. You can actually, you can just continue finding new things. I'd be interested to hear your, did you engage with much Pierce. I just have kind of a interest in Pierce because I think there's, I'm obsessed with Dune. So I have this <laughs> idea of like applying a lot of anti-Oedipus and a thousand plateaus, et cetera, type material to the work. And I think Pierce in particular might be something because of his, I think there's something there to chase up. So I'd just be curious. Well, the semiotics, right? That, right, that would yeah. be semiotics. Mm-hmm. So I engaged a little bit with Pierce while I was reading Deleuze and Guattari, especially to understand, you know, what they meant, the difference between semiotics and and linguistics, you know, when they start talking about those differences. But I must say that at that point, I had sort of, I just didn't want to do ling- anything related right. to language and linguistics anymore. So, so I kind of read it and I like the the idea of semiology and semiosis and all of that, you know, that you can play with, that for me starts getting really interesting. And and I recently read a sci-fi novel called Semiosis. I don't know if you've read it, but interesting. Yeah, it's really good. It's it's about it's kind of about bamboo communicating. 
in this kind of very strange way with people. So it's, hmm. it's really, really interesting. And I guess, you know, that did spark a little bit of, of interest again in this kind of line of thinking. But I'd, I'd really be interested to hear how you're linking this to Dune. <laughs> for Pierce, I'm not sure quite yet, but I think there's a lot of, even in A Thousand Plateaus, for example, they cite the novel Children of Dune in the nomadology chapter referencing it's like the because in the desert on arrakis on the planet you have to avoid walking with rhythm or you'll attract one of these giant sandworms the sandworms respond to i don't know they have some type of sonar sense or whatever so there's something there also with regard to sort of the way that the fremen people who are kind of the quasi-indigenous inhabitants of the planet they hide their numbers there's never been a census of them so they're like there's something about you know escaping Obviously, the nomadology, the nomad aspect of it, but also that what is it evading, evading capture, evading what's the other one I'm I'm, I'm blanking on. Well, there's something interesting even with rhythm and the refrain there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. You, yeah. Perhaps an a signification tie there too yeah, with yeah. the walk. You know, with the walking, it's not really mm. because it's a semi-feudalist society too. Like a lot of the understanding the barbarian you know, territory or the barbarian territorial yeah. machines, et cetera, mm-hmm. all of that, uh, the war machine, et cetera, like that's kind of baked in there because you kind of have this colonial power, the Atreides come to, mm. and they sort of graft onto this mythology that's been laid, laying down this kind of colonial myth of this outside male that's going to be their messiah, et cetera. And so they kind of utilize that and to sort of for their own ends, ultimately. So there's just a lot of, it's an interesting way to kind of look at these ideas. Yeah. I think there's I don't know a, if that helps. definitely a book in there. I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I just have to read um, a lot, some Pierce, and as well as uh, some more. Gosh, I'm blinking on. Oh, Bergson. I think Bergson in particular yes. because of the the time element and Mm-mm. the sort of prescient vision. I mean, even perhaps dogmatic image of thought in the way that these particular visions of the future become its own self fulfilling prophecy yeah. in a way. Taylor's I mean, rolling his eyes. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I just I just think that, you know, what's interesting is you could spend a lifetime reading Purse, right? There's a like 100,000 yeah. pages of him. But the, at the very least, Guattari draws upon his work to try to elaborate a semiotics that wouldn't privilege language. Yes. Perhaps like he wants to say, you know, Bard and semiology is, is really a kind of linguistics-based study of signs, whereas Purse gives mm-hmm. us this the semiotics that's more, you know, you could say machinic or asignifying, et cetera. It doesn't privilege language as the front runner or as encompassing everything of signs. And I think that's why, too, you see them privileging someone like Helmslev, you yeah. know, and Antiedipus on over Saussure and et cetera. You know, so yeah. there's there's all of that. In any case, this is this is great that we we opened a can of sandworms <laughs> to uh, to get us started. I uh, I guess we could go anywhere here. I was I was definitely struck by a number of things in your origin story. I looked at your your essay, which I assume may have spawned from your work on your dissertation. I, I was really struck by this kind of opening question of you know can there be a translation that isn't reduced to a kind of mechanical redundancy and transformation of redundancies, but has the aspects of a kind of creative, transformative, machinic repetition. I know that's not why we have you on today, but I just wanted to say (laughs) I was fascinated because I am very much thinking 
you know, in terms of as as a translator myself, I was definitely yeah. kind of looking at that and, and saying, oh, okay, that's that's fascinating. And, you know, I do think that there is something to that because, you know, the kind of translation I do with philosophy can be very much more straightforward. Mm. But on the other hand, it may not be Proust or something as elaborate as that. But on the other hand, there is a sense in which you know, I like to think that I try to bring a little bit of a poetic sensibility because sometimes as translators, we may focus more on the content and say, I want to get the ideas first. But then, you know, you also need to have that aspect of where you're trying to ask yourself, how does this, how would the sound in English, you know, mm -hmm. and so you need to have a kind of holistic take where you're also thinking of the, the formalization of the ideas. Otherwise, they don't go and you lose some of that magic, if you will, you lose some of that, that impact. I mean, I think I forget the author you discuss in, at the start of the your essay, but you kind of say you were struck by reading it in the original and then you, you got a copy of the translation and it just kind of lost a certain enchantment to it. Yes. And so that's Afrikaans, which is sort of my second language. I don't really speak it, but I read it well. And it's uh -huh. very close to Dutch, right? In fact, if you, if you can read Afrikaans, you can read Dutch and vice versa. They, they're very close. So already it is quite difficult for me to read literary Afrikaans. Well, it's quite poetic, but it's, Afrikaans is a very interesting, it's quite a guttural language in some ways. It kind of mobilizes sound in a very specific way, which makes it sometimes funny, sometimes poetic. It really mobilizes, I would say, motion through kind of sound. And so English doesn't do that very well in that way, in quite that way. You know, you have these guttural sounds in Afrikaans, like, mm -hmm. and, you know, I can't even do the R. So it's, it's an R that I can't pronounce. <laughs> it really has this, like, it's got impact. And I think that was the, the thing for me that was so interesting about then reading the English. And what actually started me on the project was reading Murakami. You know, there's that one short story that's translated by one translator, and that becomes the, the first chapter of, I think, A Hard World Wonderland or one of, one of those. And it's translated by somebody else. And it's just so different. And so that, that was sort of what started me thinking around this, you know, and Hofstadter also has that wonderful book on Mamignon, you know, the little poem that he writes. And that whole book is about this poem and he makes his students kind of translate it and they, it has these rules. And so there's something so interesting. It's really interested me for a long time. Just, you know, translation is so fascinating. And when you read translation theory, you know, it's it's the same old stuff. Like, okay, you know, are you, you kind of have to measure meaning with, you know, reading or readability. And, right. you know, it's, it's so kind of stuffy for me, you know. And then, of course, you have to take into consideration culture and, you know, all these things. And they're important. All of these aspects are important. I'm not actually trying to diss them in any way. But I wanted something... I guess a little bit more nomadic, if yeah. we want, if we're going to use a word here, you know, a kind of nomadic mm. translation praxis. What what does that look like? You know, what is it? Yeah, what does it mean to to mobilize? You know, if you think about sort of, you know, translating Simondon, for example, mm -hmm. and mobilizing those concepts in a way that captures what he does 
in the French in mm-hmm. some way, just mobilizes them. And so for me, that's the kind of the kind of thing that I was thinking about. And I've also done a little bit of translation. So I have grappled with mm-hmm. that, like, okay, how do you say this? And, you know, what would be the best way of, of doing this? And of course, it's different whether... You know, if you're doing philosophy, it has its own thing. When you're doing literature, it's got its own thing. If you're translating an advertisement, it's a very different <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know? yeah. I think that's the thing that started fascinating me is just, this is the thing, how to not reproduce a kind of order word. So that was the thing that I was thinking with sort of mechanical reproduction versus machinic repetition. It's interesting, right? Because there's a sense in which on an ordinary everyday level, we might think of the notion of machinic as referring to a machine translation, when in fact, that would be much closer to the mechanical, where you really just kind of have an input and an output that can perhaps get the job done in a pinch, especially Mm -hmm. if you're trying to maybe translate, you know, a sign or an order word, but in order to make things pass and to give it, give it a certain lived experience or something like this, you, you've you got to tap into something else. But in any case, I know I feel like I, I, I apologize to both of you. I feel like I've hijacked this away from the focus. But maybe there's a way there, there's something that can that can maybe deepen our discussion of your, of I, your no, I think this is I think this is good because the order words or something. I mean, I've mm-hmm. I've not as read up on Deleuze and Guattari as either of you. So this kind of definitely is good for me to talk about the order words at the very least. I know mm-hmm. I didn't really preface a question there, but I just wanted to interject. I think I do talk about the order words somewhere in the book. So yes. you do yes. exactly. In That's there. what exactly. Yeah, yeah. because yeah. it's kind of linked. It's even kind of linked to the dogmatic image image of thought, to kind of axiomatic thinking, if you want to call it that. And you know, what is that thing that Deleuze and Guattari say so well? They say, well, it's not. What is it transferring? It's transferring a kind of a literal order it's telling you what to do rather than communicating something other than that it's not communicating different content other than you know this is how you should behave it's kind of a codian in that sense but i think that's the thing that really interests me about the order word is also how they link it to the, the incorporeal transformation because i think that's where you know the real power lies is you know when the judge says you're guilty mm-hmm. in that moment in that moment you change from one thing to another irrevocably right i always think about this you know when they tap you on the head and you get your doctorate and um suddenly you're a doctor oh right so <laughs> comes with a certain kind of prestige and, and whatever you know and and what i find interesting you know this is interesting for me because as someone who is quite tattooed and Oh, you know, I have piercings and I have a lot less piercings now than I used to have. I had <laughs> had a lot of, um, I think, 11 at some point in mm. my, on my face. So it, it was, it's quite out there. And for me, what has always been interesting is, you know, you get treated a certain way. People treat you a certain way. And then they see professor or right. <laughs> doctor in front of your name and it changes. Yeah, that's interesting. I love this. So, I love to subvert yeah. <laughs> expectations in this way. So, but keep going, please. Please, please, please. Sorry. But, but that's the thing, right? It's that expectation. That's what the order word does. It right. creates a specific expectation around a specific context. In that sense, it's very much like, I would say, like the dogmatic image of thought is that it, it sets out the 
the possibility for action or for thought in advance. So I think that's really quite interesting for me. And, you know, when you start thinking about what happens at school, at least in my school, <laughs> you know, the way teachers speak to you or treat you or all of that is really just communicating order words. You know, and for me, it's very closely tied to sort of discipline in Foucault's sense. So I think there's something there, a kind of affinity between order words and discipline. It, there's something very closely related there because it does the same thing. You also internalize order words. It's something that you, that's not just communicated, but that's internalized and then acted out and reproduced. And that's that thing, you know, with Deleuze and Guattari talk about, these are two concepts that really interest me. My next big book is going to be on redundancy. Yeah, excellent, <laughs> excellent. So this is the thing, you know, Deleuze says in the beginning of uh, Difference and Repetition that you never know what is going to, you never know quite what you're going to become obsessed with, basically. But this notion of redundancy is basically that for me. I just I find it so interesting. And it occurs, they use it so many times in A Thousand Plateaus. I've been thinking about it more and more is like, what, what does that redundancy do and mean? And of course, it is very closely related to resonance. But, you know, redundancy, again, it doesn't have valence because a refrain is, is a redundancy, right? Mm -hmm. And it can be positive or negative, depending on whether it allows for experimentation or not. So redundancy is this kind of very mutable concept, and they use it in both senses. They use it more negatively, actually more than what they use it positively when they talk about it in A Thousand Plateaus. But when you start thinking about, for example, how the state form resonates itself through religion, in the family, in schools, and so on, and that reproduction is the redundancy. So the state becomes redundant. It doesn't have to work so hard. There's something about the state that becomes redundant because it's already auto-produced in all these other ways. And so I think that's, that really interests me. How does this work? And I think there's, you know, for me now, thinking about information, I think a lot more about information and sort of algorithmic societies and that kind of thing. And I think it's so closely linked to that too. Because recursion creates a kind of redundancy in so many spheres, you know. I think I've gone off topic. <laughs> oh, no, that's good. That's good. <laughs> no, this, kind of, this makes that, me that think. The idea of redundancy is very much, that's kind of why I think I talked about the dogmatic image of thought for such a long time in the book. I take up quite a lot of space to discuss it. And in some ways, you know, when I was doing that, I was like, oh, you know, haven't too many people written about this? And shouldn't I just leave this out? Because I don't just want to repeat what other people have said. But I just thought that there was something in the way that it's related to the state and to capitalism, and even then to algorithmic societies, which I wanted to bring back into discussion. Because I think it's a really powerful, I mean, I like chapters four and five in Difference and Repetition. Those are really my favorites. But I think chapter three is that pivot, you know, it is that pivot chapter. And it it is so important because it brings together almost Deleuze's entire project. You know, he sort of encapsulates something about what he does in his own work, which is to lay bare the redundancy and then mobilize it in a new way. And he does it with 
thinkers, he does it with concepts, and then later he does something new with Guattaria. But they continue that in some way. So I guess that was the, the kind of focal point that I wanted to bring back, especially thinking about why it's so difficult, I think, even sometimes for anarchists, <laughs> to think about what the world might look like outside of the state and capitalism. And especially, you know, because I think it's kind of moved on even from neoliberalism. I think we're in what we can call really an algorithmic stage of mm -hmm capitalism. So there's something, you know, not that neoliberalism has disappeared, but I think there's a new kind of dimension that is taking place. So I think that's really, yeah, that's really something that interests me is why is it so difficult? I mean, we know it's difficult to think outside of your own little conceptual box until you read something. And I remember I had this with Deleuze and Guattari where I was just like, my brain was blown, you know, and then I didn't have it for a long time until I read Simon Don, really. And I was like, you know, what is this? And I read the technical one first, you know, and I was just mm -hmm. like, what? What is this guy saying? This is like something is happening here. And now, and I've had that with, with Stegler. And also I'm now starting to grapple with Laura Wells. So oh there's something similar happening there, you know, which is just, it's so nice when you almost see your own the limits of your own imagination when mm -hmm. suddenly it's exposed to you and you're like oh my god this is how i've been thinking all this time mm -hmm. and there's a whole other way of thinking but i just couldn't see it that's such a great way to describe it i think i'm glad that you brought up redundancy i am glad that you've you've continued your your origin story to kind of the the mid game and and, <laughs> and and you're talking about your development you've even looked forward to your next work which is always something that we try to end with so that's something we can we can come it's back the recurse, to recursive yeah that's the re the exactly <laughs> i mean but but there is something about it right where you know they even define redundancy in terms of the sign is redundant with the sign yeah. kind of ad infinitum but i like that you brought it up and linked it to the dogmatic image of thought and you know there is something too about how when deleuze is looking back at his solo work if you will and i think he he does himself a disservice, but he humbly says, you know, if if there's something in what I wrote before this assemblage with Guattari that I would preserve and, and say I did something good, it would be the image of thought chapter, right? And I do think that you're right. There's this pivot in deficit repetition, but in, in fact, against thinkers like Badu and others who want to say Deleuze is an apolitical thinker, which there is a semblance of that before the work with Guattari. The Image of Thought chapter has such a political valence, and it gives yes. us some of the tools to elaborate what you take up as statist realism. And I like that your footnote kind of points out, and I may be butchering her name, so I'm going to be generous. Anurata Dingwani Needham has apparently coins this term, statist realism, which yeah. you take for yourself and repurpose, which is part of how concepts work. But it seems like her usage of it or coinage is related to a kind of cinematic notion where we are, I suppose, situated in a way in which we are sort of viewing things like a state or like these states, if you will, that we're supposed to resonate with. And you take this and generalize it and kind of universalize it to describe the ways in which, you know, whether we attribute this to Zizek or Jameson, right, where it's easier to 
imagine the end of the world and the end of capitalism. And that's part and parcel with our kind of, you know, you could say it's easier to imagine a sort of, I suppose, an apocalyptic vision than the downfall of of the state form. So there's something about thinking, taking the state as the as a model, which is sometimes how Deleuze and Guattari talk about it, that you forefront in your work and you want to call that into question. So I, I wanted to say all of that to allow you maybe a, a space to describe what went into you taking up this term, reprising it, statist realism. You know, when I was grappling with this, you know, I did mention this to you before, but I'm just going to, you know, I was, I just had um, hip surgery. And so I was very stationary. I was very stuck in a chair and I had to kind of learn to walk again. And I was in a lot of pain. I think that's why I started writing about care a lot <laughs> in the end. But, um, but as I was thinking about it, so I really struggled. I actually struggled with this chapter. And I think because it, it was right in the beginning and I was really still quite in a lot of pain and I just couldn't bring it together. So I just was, I was thinking about the state and the state form and, you know, what can I say that anarchists and Deleuze and Guattari haven't said, you know, because I, it's so difficult, you know, bringing together these large bodies of work. A lot of work has been done on this. A lot of work has been done on the state and capitalism. It's really, it could be redundant itself. <laughs> so, it's, it's, it's saturated, so I think, right? I was kind of just struggling and I went onto my computer a little bit and I started sort of surfing my own books, my book collection. And I've, I came across the Mark Fisher again. And mm -hmm. of course, he writes the book on capitalist realism. He's the first one to kind of think about, you know, how can't get out of a certain mode of living and thinking. And so he really thinks about this in terms of capitalism. And then I just, I was like, oh my God, there's like statist realism and it's something different. It's not quite the same. And why hasn't anyone used this? <laughs> so, so I started looking up, you know, does this term exist? Because I was kind of excited. And, and then I found this one reference to it, but it didn't really describe what I wanted to describe. And actually, Dan McQuillan has now coined AI realism, mm. and I'm a little bit jealous of that. <laughs> you know, capitalism does a specific thing, and Mark Fisher really describes it well. But I think for me, that's really what I started thinking about the state. Everything I had read led to this idea of thinking about the foreclosure of any kind of thought of any other kind of socio-political arrangement. Why can't we think outside the state? And when you say this to people, this is sort of one of the things I hear the most, you know, when I talk about anarchism and so on, but it can't work at large scales. It's impossible. Well, we have Rojava and we also have the Zapatistas as very good examples of how it might work at mm -hmm. quite large scales, right? So they are actually examples of people who have just broken out of this. But I think it really is difficult because, again, and I think it's again that redundancy, the state form is also our form of thought. Yeah. And it's also how we grow up in schools. It's how we schooled. It's how we, it's part of the nuclear family. All of those, those little enclosures reproduce the state form. And so I think, you know, 
that's even why people, I think that's why people can't often think about other family or familial arrangements, you know, because it's just so ingrained. And it's not how we lived all this time. You know, people had many different ways of living. There have been lots of different kinds of experiments with sociopolitical organization. And I think this really points also to the violence of the state mm-hmm. and the axiomatics of the state, right? That kind of violent takeover of the way we live, the way we think, and the mechanisms that are used to keep that in place. And there are so many, you know, bureaucratization. It is difficult. And I and I think also to be experimental, and Deleuze and Guattari even say this, they say this so nicely in the refrain chapter. And Guattari says this somewhere else in a, in a nicer way. He says, you have to have a little piece of fresh grass in your pocket. You know, I love that. There has to be a little bit of home in mm-hmm. order for you to be able to experiment. If there's not a little bit of security, you can't actually go out and experiment because you're more focused on security. And so we live in a very precarious kind of world. You know, work is very precarious, for example. And, you know, why would you protest against bad working conditions if you're scared you're going to lose your job or your contract, or you won't get another contract, or you won't get your contract renewed, or or any of these things. So so precarity, I think, now plays, whereas violence used to play quite a big role, you know, during the sort of more imperial time, then colonization and so on, it's now become far more subtle. Mm. And I think precarity is one of the ways in which the state reproduces itself in its kind of current form. So I think it's you know, and if we think about the state and kind of the resources that go into upholding state formations, nations, really just like sort of, you know, if you think about military spending, which everything just is geared towards protecting this idea of the state and the nation. And of course, you know, the way we talk about migrants and and so on, reinforces that again. Xenophobia reinforces that again. I think that those mechanisms sort of of resonance are so sophisticated. And that's, it's not because people are dumb or because they can't, or because they're lazy, that they can't think outside of the state form. It's because it's so infused and diffused all around us. And so you have to almost start unpacking, you have to unpack so many things, including in your own thought. And it's a kind of continuous process. I think that for me is really, you know, what what statist realism is. And it's also, it's a kind of, you know, if we talk about desire, the way Deleuze mm-hmm. and Guattari would, it's a kind of desire for a transcendent form. Mm-hmm. It's a desire for a kind of security. But of course, that desire is created by the state. It's not there before, despite, you know, the social contract and all of those theories. It didn't exist before. It was created by the state. And so that's, you know, Deleuze and Guattari talk about the originary violence of the state in A Thousand Plateaus when they move a little bit on from anti-Oedipus. Yeah, I do think it's interesting. I think when we had John Pertevi on, one of the things that I really enjoyed discussing was this notion, you know, Kant talks about the originary violence of the state, but he kind of kind of makes it secondary de facto, because if you look a little bit too hard at the founding violence of the state whereupon, whereupon it gets its authority, then 
you start to get a little bit of uh, unrest and, a, and you start to kind of think in a certain way where it becomes contingent and not necessary. And so it it leads a little too quickly to saying, well, that's that's a strange presupposition. Maybe it should be done away with. And then you end up with things like the terror, right, which has to be, you know, the terror of the capital T, right, the, that has to be warded off. So there is this interesting aspect where you know, obviously, this is something too that's been written about a lot. So it is it is interesting that there is kind of in this presupposition. It's like don't look backward too much, otherwise you might call into question the dogmatic image of thought, the sort of state model as a noological model or way of thinking. Yeah. And I guess the last thing I'll say before sort of throwing it back to you or Coop is this notion that. There's something interesting where it's almost an aside, but Deleuze also qualifies the dogmatic image of thought as an orthodox or moral image of thought. Mm -hmm. And so there's something about how the state form or status realism also sort of, you know, we could talk about in terms of order words or a whole framework of order words where it imposes a kind of morality of say good sense common sense of the the good nature of thinking and it kind of presupposes an orthodoxy that is in a certain sense the foreclosure of any sort of experimentation because that already seems to be kind of built into these other forms like i'm just thinking about when i was growing up and i think you know coop and i share a similar type of religious upbringing where even to kind of call into question certain theological principles whether it be the existence of god or the role of sin blah 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 there's always already this thread of heresy of blasphemy that presupposes even kind of questioning the conceptual framework with, within which a worldview is supposedly situated is itself inherently sinful or asocial, anarchistic, something like this. This moral dimension has always kind of struck me, and sometimes it can be lost, but it's it's part and parcel of the of the dogma. I don't know if you remember many years ago, but many, <laughs> um, but sort of been maybe the nineties. Susan Blackmore, who was really interested in kind of sort of paranormal psychology, and she did a sort of 180, and she just started realizing that, hold on, there's a very interesting way in which like religion works, for example. And she yeah. wrote that little book called The Meme Machine, long before internet memes, right? Or quite a while before internet memes became what it is now. So it's sort of closer related to, what's his name? The blind watchmaker, oh. Dawkins. It's, yes. it's, it's yeah, closer Richard to Dawkins. his idea. Yeah, it's closer to his idea of, of the meme. Uh, but he sort of starts talking about all these hooks, like exactly that. Like you can't question it because, you know, already questioning it is kind of sinful. So already mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. have this like problem. And as you say, so the state does that the same. There are these almost conceptual hooks that keep bringing you back. That's quite interesting for me, you know, because, uh, yeah, I think it's those hooks that are so difficult to to kind of get rid of. It's like you can't even see them half the time, you know, you, unless you've like really grappled with something. And as you know, you know, grappling with something like religion to get out of it can be really existentially kind of threatening. And I think this is something to understand about the dogmatic image of thought is that to get rid of it, you kind of have to already from the beginning be okay with a little bit of existential uncertainty because it definitely 
you know, it pushes your boundaries. That's the thing. It will, it will push your boundaries. It will push your buttons. And so you have to kind of stick with that existential uncertainty and say, okay, I'm going to just see where this takes me. I think that what's interesting, you know, you brought up that really nice quote from Guattari, the little, a little bit of grass, the little bit of home. And what's so insidious is that the state form or status realism, this presupposition of the kind of state as the conditions of possibility for what is thinkable, that can so easily be the substitute for that little bit of home. And so we have to be able to distinguish between that kind of pre-given solution, if you will, or model of, of thinking, this upright model, this good natured model of thinking. And we have to be able to see that as a kind of a false friend, if you will. And I think yeah. that this is why, too, you bring out throughout the work this notion that it's precisely, whether we call it problematics or something like this, you know, this precisely the role of being able to determine problems and solutions and not accept them as pre-given that constitutes the little bit of freedom we have to be able to maneuver and experiment. Being able to determine I think this is too wide. I always come back to this, you know, but he's as opposed to kind of culmination of absolute knowledge, Deleuze is trying to elaborate a, an understanding of what true veritable learning looks like. And learning occurs not by sort of accepting problems as already given, because to a certain extent, that just reproduces the same model of recognition of identity, et cetera, et cetera, that constitute the four walls of, of the dogmatic image. Absolutely. I think that's quite a nice way of saying it. I like the idea of the false sense of home. In the notes, this is, was an important, I, I think you would probably agree with this notion of, you know, if we're going to include, well, I guess this comes about with the title. You, you kind of mentioned in your book that anarchism after Deleuze and Guattari is perhaps not necessarily how you might title your work. It kind of comes <laughs> along in a series. And so I, I would ask two things. One, how do we understand the after? because it doesn't necessarily have to be a simple temporal linear thing, but there, there could be something about what does, you know, the after could be a dynamic thing where it's still not yet done. What, what does anarchism look like in the wake of the Lisanguatari in communication with the Lisanguatari? And then the second thing I would want to give you the chance, because I think you do set this up in some of your recurring questions about, for example, whether or not this world is still worth fighting for in the face of so many looming disastrous calamities. You subtitle your work, Fabulating Futures, and it that subtitle which is deceivingly simplistic, begs for a kind of unpacking and calls one to think sort of what, what could that entail? So I want to give you maybe a little bit just to talk about the title of the work, because I do think that within it, you perhaps can have so much leeway to unravel some of the threads that run throughout. Yeah, so I think that after is really interesting because it really irritated me in the beginning. Okay, um, okay. <laughs> okay, yeah. And then, you know, I just... But I did kind of start thinking about what if there is a way of thinking about after in an interesting way, right? Mm -hmm. Because, of course, anarchism comes way before Deleuze and Guattari. They don't really engage with anarchism in any real way, except through, I'm going to say this wrong, so Cluster's work, is that yeah. how you say it? Pierre Cluster, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's interesting because he is an anarchist. He, mm -hmm. he is the one kind of real point where they clearly must have 
kind of grappled with it a little bit, if not explicitly so. And they use the word anarchy, both or anarchism, both in anarchic and all of that, in positive and negative ways Hmm. in their sort of oeuvres. It's all over the place. So what does it mean to think about Deleuze and Guattari or rather anarchism after Deleuze and Guattari? And I think that there is something interesting because for me, at any rate, you know, we, I think we talked a little bit beforehand about the kind of post-anarchist bubble that there was. And one of the things that is interesting for me is that it did bringing post-structuralism into contact with anarchism and the other way around really did something for both of them. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of anarchism, I think the kind of theoretical backing of Deleuze and Guattari is for me, well, that's maybe just because I'm really into theory and I kind of like systematic thinking, but I quite like, I really like the kind of philosophical depth that it brought for me to my own thinking around anarchism. And at the same time, it radicalizes Deleuze and Guattari even a bit more. Mm -hmm. Because I think, for me, at any rate, their political project is radical. It really, even something like schizoanalysis is Mm -hmm. radical. It's not some social democratic kind of, (laughs) you know, idea of life and what life could be. Because that's the question they ask, isn't it? When they're thinking about desire or any of these other things, they're asking, how can we live the most intensive kind of life without either kind of succumbing to a line of death, or, you know, deterritorializing too fast, so having the kind of intensity eat us up, or not have a life of intensity at all. So how do we mobilize intensity, both in the kind of pre-individual and sort of more actualized, not that these things are separate, the virtual and the, we only think the virtual, it's not separate from life. (laughs) So I quite like this idea of that's the question they're grappling with, is how do we live a life of intensity, especially given that we live in these statist capitalist societies that want to kind of kind of dilute our desire. And so this is the thing that I started thinking, okay, and this is where fabulating futures come from, because I had a very different project in mind. I think my project ended up being a little bit more hopeful than I thought it would be. I tend to be quite misanthropic, and I think you can <laughs> actually see that in some of my work. But as I was writing this, I was thinking, what is it that Deleuze and Guattari and anarchism gave me? Because that's the thing I want to communicate. And what it gave to me is not only a kind of radicalization of my own thought, but as someone who is quite misanthropic, they gave me a kind of way of both of these things, of, or there are three really, of thinking about life in a more generative way. And so I first wanted to have the subtitle, I had to fight for the subtitle a little bit, but I wanted to have it folding cosmologies. And I still like that. And I think I still want to do something. <laughs> mm-hmm. But as I started working through this, I just thought, you know, actually what I'm thinking about is the future. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about 
this lack of future that we're feeling, that we're all feeling because of climate change and, you know, the kinds of problems we're dealing with in societies, the disintegration of society and so on. There's a sense of the future being something that is not really available to us anymore or available only for a short time, you know, like the world will, you know, even the UN says like we have 10 years or whatever, you know. So so there's that idea of like, this apocalyptic doom. And so I wanted to really take that. And here, I think, is where that idea of believing in this world, because I, as I was reading through the literature again, I just found them repeating this sentence, you know, mm. like in different ways, in conversations with Claire Parnay and mm-hmm. just in, in letters and so on. This idea of belief in this world repeats. And then I also found it in Stigler. Stigler, in one of his books, I think it's in one of the Disbelief and Discredit books. I might be lying, so somebody should check this. <laughs> but I think it's in there. So I think it's there that he says, he picks up on that too. And he says, you know, he agrees with Deleuze that we need to find reasons to believe in this world. It just resonated with me because even when I look at my students, you know, I just see a kind of hopelessness, just a kind of apathy, a kind Mm of like, whatever, does it matter? You know, even one of my students last year, I think we we were talking about gender or race or something like that in class. And somehow we were thinking about kind of changing how how we live. And somebody even said to me, they put up their hands and they were like, but why should we? Because is there a future for us? Is it worth thinking about changing all these things, which, you know, are great. They weren't against it. They thought it was, you know, great to think about it. But they were just like, what's the point? Where are we going, you know? And I guess that's where I I love that, there's that Bifo Baradi quote, you know, where he kind of says, you know, why do, why do we do these things? And he says, well, we have to act as if, as if there is a possibility that we can change capitalist societies as if there is a possibility that we can create a different way of living that does not rely on the state. Well, he doesn't say that, but he talks about that as if. And that for me was just, it was so profound when I sort of reread that. I just thought, you know, because that's kind of, it's a self-validating action. So even when you think about how Deleuze talks and Guattari talk about inscription, in Anti-Oedipus, where they start talking about territorial inscription and imperial inscription and so on. And they talk about codes before overcoding, codes being self-validating. And so there's a sense of agency in that, right? You're doing it because you believe it's worth doing. And I think for me, you know, it's not because somebody tells you, which is so much of what we do, because somebody tells me. No, it's because I believe it's the ethical thing to do and it's worth doing for that reason. And I think that for me started, that started connecting something. How do we get out of this reflexive impotence that is kind of statist realism or capitalist realism or AI realism or whatever you want to call it? How do we get away from that and start thinking about what it means to fabulate futures in the here and now. And I guess that then became a kind of driving idea. You know, I think it is actually, you see it sort of from the beginning of the book to the end. It starts 
it's a kind of theme or a refrain for me. Mm -hmm. This is really good. And, and that's why when I was sort of reading through and why I told you before we started, I kind of revisited one of the series in Logic of Sense, the series on the event. And it's there, well, it's not the only place, but it's one of the places where he describes the sort of activity of counter actualization, because it's sort of there that we have some of this discussion about sort of ways of, I think, thinking about the present in such a way that the past and the future can have an indefinite impact. And so part of, you know, not to belabor the point or, or become exegetical and try to unpack the concept itself, because it's that would be a whole episode, but it's it's more to me what I was struck with about how some of this talk about counter actualization sort of goes with his whole notion of this kind of ethics of the event, which is, you know, not to be unworthy of what happens to us. But it also is about ways of thinking in the present, but outside of its constraints, which I think is part and parcel of this kind of thinking outside of the dogmatic image of thought, but perhaps having effects on it, perhaps sort of dismantling it from within, even if we're, mm -hmm. we're sort of always already sort of caught within, for example, writing books or using words as we are here, we're, we're sort of mobilizing representation, but in a way against itself. And so there's something about, you know, within the, the present, but not constrained by it and, and sort of working with and in it, but sort of undermining it from within. And I think that that's part of what I was perhaps also getting from this notion of fabulating futures, because yes, we have to do it in the, in the here and now, but it is also with enough sort of potential to mobilize that metastability that can transform the present from within sort of against it, you know, and I think that that's what got me thinking a little bit that that was something that I kind of took away from it. Because otherwise, yes, we we are, if we merely sort of think of the states of affairs of the present, things can look very bleak, but that's not that's just one aspect and it may feel overwhelming but as you were kind of saying earlier you need a little bit of that anxiety that can you know as simon don kind of works it out you know anxiety is this movement where we are faced with the possibility of the here and now being transformable or substitutable for an infinity of other here's and now and the problem I think with Simon Doan is that anxiety can lead us to want to try to make these trans individual transformations on our own as though kind of in a Heideggerian way where like the death that confronts us our being toward death is very much mine but in a certain sense Simon Doan wants to show that no there is a sense in which anxiety can be lead to a defeatist stance and we can think that we can create these becomings and transformations just on our own. But when it's linked back up and that when that potential is linked back up to the larger collective activity of individuation via trans individuation, there is this possibility of mobilizing other here's and now. And I think that that's part of the tension and the struggle, I think, perhaps is what I got out of your subtitle. I mean, fabulating futures, I think that is the thing, you know, Part of, you know, there's this tendency towards individualization instead of individuation already in our societies. And I think this is something that anarchism really, and, and also Deleuze and Guattari actually really emphasize is the collective, right? Mm -hmm. Especially Guattari in his own work, the group, the collective, the subject group, you know, the group of enunciation. For me, that is really important because 
Yeah, I think we live very individualized lives because life has moved us all in that way. You know, communities aren't quite as close-knit as they used to be. You know, it's also not so easy to find, like, your people. You know, like, when I was younger and you were a goth, you wore certain kinds of you know, makeup or clothing. And you went to a club and you saw the person that looked like you and you were like, hmm, maybe they listen to the same music I do. Maybe they're thinking the same thoughts as I do. And you kind of start talking, right? So there's so much less of that kind of subculture going around these days. They, they aren't really places. I mean, you can do it online. I think online... You know, I often critique online, I know, in my work, but I do th think that there is also a space where this kind of thing does happen online. And you can see it, especially, you know, for like trans communities, for example, mm -hmm. and the kinds of not only aid, but but also support and, and just care yeah. they have found. And so I think that there's really, you know, when we're talking about fabulating futures, it has to be a collective endeavor. And that that is very difficult living the way we do and so counteractualizing the, the present and calling forth the future is a kind of collective experimentation and i think you know it can take so many forms it doesn't have to take one form all it has to do is spark spark a, a different way of being for you whether that's trying to live communally with other people whether that's you know, participating in something like Food Not Bombs, where whether it's having an online community, it doesn't really matter. Even having a reading group, you can have a reading group. That can stimulate different thought. It doesn't have to be like throwing Molotov cocktails and, you know, <laughs> even though it, it might be. So I think that there is there is space for protest and for, and this thing around violence is very tricky because, of course, because of the sort of early propaganda by the deed part of anarchism. So I want to talk very carefully about this when I talk about it. But it was also blown out of proportion because mm -hmm. that is what the media did, right, then already. And so I think that there's this kind of bad rap that anarchism got. That's kind of just the stigma has stuck with it. But I think that there is a place for violence sometimes. And Natasha Leonard talks about the impossibility of nonviolence. And she calls it counterviolence. And I love that. Yeah. It's not violence that's for no reason. It's when there is the impossibility of nonviolent action. Because no anarchist, maybe there are one or two, but but I think for the most part, anarchists don't want to go out and, you know, protest and get involved in like violent action or, you know. Where you're kind of uh, hugging trees or, or kind of, you know, keeping the bulldozers like literally from cutting the tree or whatever. You know, those end up being quite hurtful sometimes to people themselves. But that's when they don't, that's usually when people don't see another way of being heard or changing things. And so, so as I say, I want to be careful about that. And that's, that's actually why I didn't want to write about revolution at first. <laughs> But I also, I felt that I couldn't not talk about it because it is an integral part of anarchist thought. And it is also a very integral part of Deleuze and Guattari's thought. You know, and they call it different things maybe, but there is a kind of revolutionary impulse. And I think that that is kind of 
you know, that links again to the fabulating futures. It's that revolutionary impulse, a kind of collective action towards calling for the future that doesn't exist. It is interesting I, to go back to the idea, I guess, the web and perhaps the algorithmic element of the book. I think it is kind of interesting that, yeah, there it's like the dominant usage of these things or these tools, these social media tools is seems to be working against our favor, but there are those opportunities. Obviously, Taylor and I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Twitter, which is kind of interesting. I've met my roommate. I've met so many people, even to speak to just the trans community online. You know, we both interact pretty regularly with a pretty, you know, vibrant trans community and, you know, anarchist, communists, etc. And I think that's been great for us as, you know, we're like the white guys, like we, you know, play sports, etc. Like, you know what I mean? We're kind of the, you know, the little ideal subject or whatever, faciality of of capitalism, etc. So I think that has been something that has enriched, I think, both of our lives and just being able to experience, you know, interacting with people of different walks of life, even in a city like Austin, you know, I'm not encountering in conversations with trans people in real life that frequently, you know, I think that's been sort of a generative aspect of it. But I don't know if we, if you don't mind, perhaps we could discuss a little bit of this element, your kind of discussion of cybernetics a bit and kind of the algorithmic society. These are things that are very interesting to me. Baudrillard is something is kind of fascinating for me. And I think that could even go back into the recursivity aspect, you know, with the simulacra, et cetera. I don't know. I'd just be kind of curious to hear, maybe elaborate a bit on, you know, you kind of draw from McKinsey Works work with regard to, I guess, this sort of the way that flows of information and this sort of post neoliberal like evolution of capital. I don't know if you want to, maybe we could generate a little conversation on this topic before we close out the episode. I mean, that for me is something that is really interesting and it's really where my work has gone. It's is kind of thinking more about this. And I think in the book, I take quite a negative view of cybernetics because I read Tikwin mainly, and I've now read, I've now read a lot of cybernetics and changed my mind quite a lot. I think cybernetics is such a wide field and it's different in the US than in the UK. And there's also Russian cybernetics. And mm-hmm. you know, they there are all these different kinds of strands and they all do different things. And it's not all bad, you know, but I, I guess Tikhon does point something when they start talking about the cybernetic episteme, which I would maybe prefer to call algorithmic societies. And of course, we know that Deleuze already sort of hints towards this or at this in the postscript, but this is quite late in his life. And so for me, in some ways, Stigler actually picks up that project because he spends you know, he's one of the few continental philosophers who really spent his almost his entire career thinking about digitality and how it's changing thought and, you know, kind of almost interrupting our knowledges. And I guess one of the things that is really interesting for me is this idea of pharmacology that he he brings up, talking about the pharmacological situation, seeing kind of digitality as a pharmacon, you know, where it has this potential for all these positive things that you've just been discussing. But at the same time, there's a lack of care. It also causes all these other things that we're seeing, like technological overdependence, techno-solutionism, all this kind of thing that I think is more negative. But I think the thing that is really interesting to me is 
you know, where he starts talking about what memory is or time binding. Actually, it's about time binding. Our experience of ourselves as time binding subjects and also of society as a kind of time binding structure. And so, you know, one of the things that that I started thinking about is I started thinking about this in terms of inscription. Well, he talks about it in terms of retention and protention, sort of drawing on his sorrel. And it's really this idea of the externalization of memory. Now, of course, we have always done this. This is not unique to digitality. And in some ways, we can think of the development of the opposable thumb as the beginning of externalization of memory, because this allows us to start creating tools and artifacts. And there are many ways in which we externalize our memory, including communal ways, right, through rituals or markings, territorial markings, as Deleuze and Guattari would talk about. And that sort of aids intergenerational or the transmission of intergenerational memory, which is so important for for knowledge of how to live. This is the thing that really interests Stegler. And it's actually the thing that I think, you know, as I said earlier, is something that interests Deleuze and Guattari in terms of, you know, we can think about it in terms of circuit building. How do we build circuits? So Deleuze and Guattari will talk about it in terms of the refrain or body without organs, Simondon and Stegler will talk about it in terms of individuation and trans-individuation and so some more ontogenetic processes. But that's kind of the crux, right, is now what is happening when these knowledges become more and more knowledges of how to live? You know, he talks about savoir-faire and savoir-vivre. And so it's these knowledges of, of how to live and be in the world. And what happens when that becomes automated and just kind of externalized to the extent, as he says, that we're always dreaming the next level of self exosomatization. And so it's just like, you know, there's, there's something really profound that is happening. And this is where I think, this is what makes me angry about AI ethics. It doesn't pose questions, you know, it doesn't pose the right questions because it asks things about opacity and bias and power accumulation. And all of this is important, but it doesn't ask the more underlying question, which is, do we need technologies to look the way they do? Do we need to be accumulating data in the ways that we are already? What do we want our societies to look like? And once we've thought about that, what would the role of technology be in that society? So that's a different question. And so for me, that is the question that, you know, that is, is sort of at the forefront of maybe Stegler's philosophy, but also important for me is like, okay, so these knowledges of how to live, we're just sort of, they're just becoming automated and we are aiding that process of exosomatization, right? This kind of taking our memory and dumping it into what he calls hypermnesic artifacts, something like your cell phone, right? So tools would also be a hypermnesic kind of artifact, but, but if you think about what we do with cell phones, you know, think about how often people, you know, you take photos and you never look at it again. So there's not that curation of photos used to be something that was 
really linked to memory and you would look at it and you would discuss it with your family. And there was something that happened. There was a kind of knowledge transfer that happened in that process. You're learning, you know, at your your mother's or your grandmother's or your father's kind of feet almost of how to live. And now that that is kind of being automated, I think this comes right back to the question of fabulating futures. How do we fabulate futures if we don't have a knowledge of how to live? And so that's a big question. <laughs> and I think there are many different answers to it. I don't think it's hopeless. You know, this for me is, is the wonderful thing about Stigler's philosophy of care, really. And I think we do need to produce a kind of politics of care again, taking care of the pharmacological situation, not even just of ourselves and of each other but of this situation that we find ourselves in and finding ways to understand how we can collectively redistribute intensities in such a way that we become the quasi-cause of the future. And so that for me is kind of, I guess, some of the stuff that I was thinking about towards the end of the book. Along these lines to kind of build on this, because you also discuss, I want to maybe bring up this notion of what the algorithmic society looks like and how that's different. Because I think one of the interesting ways that you phrase this in, in the work is that it's like the mitigation of risk is like the new sort of paradigm, this sort of informatic, info economic milieu, perhaps, that sort of sits on top of like the productive economy and how these flows of information are now kind of, and this is again, to draw from McKinsey work a little bit, how that is sort of becoming you know, like you discussed, data collection at mass scale, that getting mobilized against us. Again, you know, and that goes back to the security. What are the risks as far as not only within the market, perhaps, you know, black swan events, et cetera, but what are the risks to the state? What are the threats to the state? We can, if we can sort of data collect at these massive scales and use algorithms to analyze that data and we can sort of point out, okay, almost like the kind of pre-crime, that's the maybe far-fetched future aspect of it. But I think perhaps this falls into that notion of like the digital panopticon or something. So yeah. I don't know if you want to discuss a little bit about this kind of transition you kind of see between the prior kind of era of, of neoliberalism that's not really, it's, it's sort, of, sort of still there, but another layer of abstraction on top of that. I like this idea of the digital panopticon. That's a very good way of, of thinking about it. And what kind of, you know, thinks about even sort of class distribution in a different way about the hacker class and the vectoralist class. And so those that are producing information and those who own the lines on which these information, the kinds of information that we're producing are produced, data being one of them. You know, when you're thinking about what happens with all of this data, there's an interesting logic, and it is the logic of the derivative yes. that is kind of in there. Because what is the de derivative? It's literally hedging your bets, right? That's what it is. That's what it does. And so when you start thinking about things like hedge funds and all of these things that go with it, it's a way of thinking about risk that makes risk that, right? that, yeah. that kind of it mobilizes risk, right? Yeah. I was so thinking credit risk, default swaps being the like obvious connection. Exactly. Number, please. It's exactly that. So it's it's a different way of understanding risk. Whereas before we tried to kind of 
ward off risk, right? So risk was thought of in a very different way. Now risk is just kind of part of the program. Okay, there is risk. So let's mobilize this. Let's think about, you know, how we can use risk. Right, as a tool, yeah. As a tool. And so I think, you know, this is also what data does. The thing is, with algorithms kind of sifting through these masses of data, we don't know what the emergent properties of those algorithmic processes right. are. They don't necessarily learn what we want them to learn or what we would learn, right? The way they optimize clusters of data is a little bit different to what a human might. And so what emerges from that is always a kind of, that kind of thing that is emerging from it, that is itself mobilizing that risk. And so a very good example of this is, or a horrible example of this, is, of course, what do they call it? Predictive policing, which takes, it's basically aimed at risk. It's aimed at kind of defining risk before it's even there. And so what does that do? It does something, something very strange to subjectivity because it kind of makes us all into that risk. We become part of this kind of system of risk. And it's not any longer something like having insurance against risk, but actually utilizing that risk for a different end. And it is for the end of capitalism, obviously. But I think, you know, it's had quite, yeah, it's got unexpected outcomes. And I think that's the thing that I think it's quite a, yeah, because technology is in a way changing faster than what theory is keeping up with. Oh, yeah. I think that they are actually good theorists out, out there now, like really grappling with this and kind of, you know, sort of becoming a little bit more speculative, which is what I think we actually need, because we need something that can counter this kind of risk thinking. And I think a kind of speculative thinking is almost what we need to do that. And it's quite difficult because I think in a way it challenges, it's a challenge for philosophy itself. It's a challenge for how we do philosophy, because philosophy is typically something that takes time and is long, and there must be space for that. That must continue to happen. You know, we can't just get rid of that. But I do think that we, we ourselves have to maybe take a little bit of risk and sort of go into the speculative to think about what it is that we need theoretically to kind of counteractualize these kinds of algorithmic flows and the kind of derivative logic that right. is at play. Yeah, I think this derivative, this idea of the derivative logic is very fascinating because I think obviously there's like the twin or like parallels between the economic derivative and I think the cultural derivative. I think of something like, you know, you brought up memes earlier. I mean, what is a meme? But that's like fully, there's that weird like mirroring of these detached abstractions that are just these kind of self-referential, auto-poetic memes. They take on a line, life of their own, right? And they just zoom off. So there's like that aspect. But another topic just relative to finance and I guess algorithms and the economy would be, we've had high frequency trading algorithms. That's not an even that new of a no. technology or like application for this sort of process. Basically, the high frequency trading algorithms have already 
captured the market such that the retail investor, the individual investor can't really compete because the algorithms can trade at, at a speed or whatever. Like you can set thresholds yeah. that obviously, you know, a human being has to operate in time and space. The algorithms don't. So you're already at this tremendous disadvantage, even if you're playing within the capitalist market. So there's that aspect, but I'm now what I'm wondering is what's going to happen when these AI trading models, because you know this is coming, like this is going to be the next thing is like, <laughs> it's going to be computers trading back each other. What are they going to do? Are they going to arrange for crashes? Are they going to like sabotage other things? Because I don't think that we're that far from a space where an AI will be able to take, steal someone's voice and make a call or log yeah. into your, crack your whatever, you know, there could be bad actors, et cetera. So mm -hmm. I guess that's maybe there could be bad actors towards the state, let's say, <laughs> that can mobilize that technology. But also, you know, on the other side, we have to be cautious about that too. So I don't know. just something that I thought of. I don't know if you have a take on maybe this derivative cultural aspect would be the more interesting path to go down. Just well, to see think, what you think about that. I mean, I think what you're saying is is totally it's on its way. You know, I think I think we've seen big jumps in AI, what we call AI in the last two years, right, with ChatGPT and, you know, the, the kind of mid-journey and the, you know, the kind of more um, artistic equivalence. Something has happened, right? I read this lovely article the other day, and, you know, they talk about it as stochastic parrots. And I quite love that idea because, obviously, there's always space for actors. You know, we're already seeing this, that derivative logic. We're already seeing that with disinformation. If you think about bots do to spread disinformation, that is a kind of derivative logic right there. And so that is something that can actually be teased out quite a bit more, especially if you're thinking along these lines of, okay, there's in the kind of financial way, in the cultural way, and, you know, there are these kind of parallels that we're seeing. And I, I mean, it's it's flows at the end of the day, right? Like whether it the information or, you know, it's kind of following at least yeah. similar what uh, context exactly i think the thing is to understand if you can start understanding the logics underlying what is happening it becomes easier to ask better questions and i think that's what is so difficult you know is kind of keeping up with how these technologies are changing and what they're doing so if you think about chat gbt3 you know there was this big thing in academia what are we going to do about plagiarism and all of that but Again, for me, that's maybe the wrong question, you know. Hmm. What's interesting for me about something like ChatGPT3 is that it's drawing on the history of human endeavor that is available on the internet. Right, yeah. And it's kind of mirroring back our own consciousness to us, right? Or our what we've produced. For example, when ChatGPT lies, <laughs> what does this proclivity for just taking facts and just presenting it? That's interesting for me because that is reflecting something about what we do sometimes, right? You just say stuff. Yeah, and I think demystifying, that's the big thing. Demystifying how these technologies work because I think that for me has been something that I've really been trying to do for myself even, just really reading so much about how these technologies work. Like, you know, what is a deep neural network? Why is it called deep? You know, why is it called the neural network? What is an algorithm? What is an algorithmic process? You know, and when you start thinking about, there's a great little book 
called Revolutionary Mathematics, and it talks about the conversion from frequentist statistics to Bayesian statistics and how that is used in machine learning. And just understanding these kind of processes has really, for me, opened up a different way of thinking about them theoretically, because it's not such a black box anymore, you know, to use that kind of algorithmic terminology. And I think this is actually maybe something that needs to be part of even our education programs, even philosophy programs, you know, is just demystifying what it is that we're talking about. Because I think there's a kind of power in that, right? There's a kind of power in keeping these technologies kind of obscure or their workings obscure. Right. Yeah, exactly. And even the kinds of things that we say, I accept, you know, and that kind of like, you know, what, what you're giving consent to. Right. The um, and of course, you know, I think Shoshana Zuboff actually talks about how intricate that is. You know, like if you really know what you're giving consent to, you would have to understand all these <laughs> yeah, like right. legal terms, exactly. and, you know, so obviously we just all say accept, you know, and, you know, there's the <laughs> cookie and the whatever. And, but I think, yeah, I think that there's, for me, something really about that. If we're going to have philosophy live up to what it is supposed to do in our current societies, I think we have to understand, we have to grapple with what is around us in the same way that Deleuze and Guattari really went and grappled with what was happening around them. You know, when they talk about all these different things in, in A Thousand Plateaus, it's because they they really went and grappled with all these different aspects of life, of their, their milieu. And I think we need a, something similar. I don't know if you've paid attention to the GameStop situation with GameStop, I've, which is, you know, they sell video games, et cetera, consoles, mm -hmm. blah, 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 reselling. Something was going on with the stock. I can't remember the specifics of it got bought out or there was like the stock was tanking. Actually, just people on like Reddit. In particular, there was this Wall Street bets group that were kind of like fighting against the institutional traders. They were shorting the stock. It was like a, kind of a big thing for maybe it was like last summer or so. I forget when this kind of came to a head. But I think it's interesting in this regard. They halted trading. Like there was all these measures that the sort of stock market, the exchanges took to mitigate the losses caused by these People just using the internet technology to band together and mobilize in this resistance way, even though it's kind of still within the logic of capital because it's obviously stock trading. But it just shows that that there is something else going on because even within the logic of capital and investment, there's an antagonism between those two logics, right? Of like, if regular investors are doing this, then we have to put a stop to it, right? So I think there's something very significant about that, especially with- yeah you know, economic power, et cetera. So Definitely. I don't know if you have a response there. If not, I have a follow-up on something that slightly switches gears. I don't have anything to add to that. I think it's a very, it's a very interesting it, um, example. To switch gears a little bit while staying on this kind of cybernetic online or digital media discussion, I thought this was quite interesting, this notion that you bring up in the book of partial transference with regard to social media interactions this is super interesting to me. As someone who is pretty much addicted to Twitter, I think there's something here, right? There's something interesting about interacting with people. I mean, 
I have people that I've never met. I don't know what they look like. I don't know their actual names. I really know absolutely nothing about them, but we've interacted for at this point, like five or six years. I have people that I've known and it's kind of weird. I know them, but I don't know them. It's such an odd thing. So I don't know if you have anything to say yeah, about this. That partial transference. Well, it's interesting, right? Because I mean, if you think about transference in the kind of psychoanalytic way, you know, they even talk about transference between a kind of client and a psychoanalyst or that kind of thing. And I think I think when I was writing about this and this kind of partial transference, I was also thinking about the short circuiting of drives that Stegler talks about. But, you know, again, I think that we have to be, or me also, you know, have to be careful of just making these. And I know sometimes when you write, one does that, right? Or when you talk, you just sort of make these almost more polemical statements. And um, and I think that partial transference can be positive or negative in the sense that it can allow for a kind of real connection between people in a different setting. At the same time, it can sometimes shortcut what could have happened in a different kind of setting. So, so for example, so for example, let's say somebody wants to befriend me on Facebook and I allow them to befriend me. And I think, okay, we're friends. That is a kind of almost botched transference, right? Because we're not friends. <laughs> yeah. right. But but we could become friends. So that partial transference is almost itself a pharmacon, right? It, it can be positive, but it can also be a substitute right. for something else. Yeah, there's still that element of alienation. Would he be hesitant to describe it more, but especially with Twitter, there's an interesting, this is super interesting to me because of like the sort of free associative process of, mm -hmm. of Twitter or tweeting, at least the way that I do it typically is kind of like, it's kind of like flushing out the machinic unconscious. Like that's what tweets. <laughs> it's not me tweeting. It's the machinic unconscious that does things. There is this sort of say anything ethos to some degree yeah. that sort of mirrors, you know, in a certain way, the kind of analytic I guess, relation or what have you. But I don't know. I just think that's such an interesting, fascinating way. Like you said, yeah, partial transference. That's the best yep. way to to sort of understand it. But and it's quite quick, right? It's also quite, it lends itself to being, that transference is, is almost instantaneous. It's not very true. This yeah. thing that takes, you know, it takes on a different kind of temporality um, right. to what we're used to thinking, you know, of, of transference, you know, in a kind of clinical more clinical setup, which would take time to occur. And so there's something, it is very interesting, you know, I think I don't actually tease it out enough in the book. I think that there's something very interesting. Yeah, there's probably a whole uh, book on just this notion of partial yeah. transference. And I think <laughs> I'm perhaps being too speculative with regard to this kind of psychoanalysis via Twitter or the digital space, but I don't know, there is some weird, we're kind of seeing the same process in yeah. a, a way and i you know maybe feeling it out and trying to figure out like exactly what's going on there's a remark that guattari makes in one of his seminars that i bootleg translated if anyone's interested you can track it down but he he makes this kind of offhand comment where faciality traits you know i i come into contact with with you and despite my 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 best efforts 
you know, these little traits are now stuck and kind of glued onto my onto my 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 way of facializing my my faciality machine and vice versa so there's something too about like just the way we interact on social media whether it be twitter or whatnot there are these little traits linguistic traits there are you know ways of phrasing i think this gets back to the discussion of memes too where they take on a life of their own not just you know propagating themselves but also sort of influencing and creating these different lines of of thinking and and flight and and so you know that would be how i would kind of parse partial transference because like you know like cooper said you can quote unquote know these people you can have truck with them as as mm-hmm. haraway might say for for years without knowing them as we might think of knowing people in real life and yet they have made all of these subtle impacts on perhaps how we how we think how we speak how we sort of even interact online, these little transferences that that can sort of bifurcate and go off and have these unintended consequences, which is why I think, you know, the way Cooper talks about sort of on his anonymous account, sort of the say anything principle, whereas the way that we interact on the sort of the show account, you know, yes, there is a a sense of, of freedom and play, but for the most part, you know, like it's a little bit more serious, a little bit more curated, and yet at the same time, there's, like he said before the show, the way I, I interact, sometimes I'll post quotes, like the quote I mentioned to you about becoming worthy of, of the event, of what happens to us, or some sort of interesting, perhaps more academic way. But, but at the same time, there's, there's still, you know, there's, there's ways of interacting online that we have these influences and without really knowing it kind of like in, in real life in that sense, but without the aspect of usually without on Twitter, at least the aspect of faciality, right. Which is kind of what Freud was trying to ward off by seating behind the, the patient, you know, there's no face here, right. Uh, no judgment, even though that's to get back to the order word, that's what they say is within every order word there's that there's that judgment there's that little yeah. death sentence right so that's the positive and negative of i suppose transference you know i do think coop unless you have uh, something else we could allow Chantel to kind of maybe reiterate you know you could tell us what you're working on you mentioned it sort of before but maybe just to remind us what is the next big thing the next research project that way we can kind of get a sense of how you're fabulating your future <laughs> and we can sort of watch it <laughs> <laughs> well we'll know what to look forward to you and and kind of be able to think out along the trajectory you're traveling i've got sort of two or three projects brewing and um the first one is a is a sort of shorter project that I would like to get out quite soon, which is a um, a kind of sexy short book mm-hmm. on cybernetics. Nice, okay. <laughs> um, but a kind of you know, I, I, I want to write something different to what's been written. And the thing that is interesting me is actually the kind of bastard offspring of cybernetics. So the more um, artistic interpretations and what how we can mobilize that philosophically in the same way that Deleuze and Guattari use kind of artistic projects to think philosophy. And so there's something, that's something that's kind of brewing for me at the moment. And yeah, I just, I just wanted to do something that's not the same as all the other stuff being done on, on cybernetics, even though I find all of it very interesting and I'm, I'm kind of like trying to read a lot and 
see the different perspectives. You know, they are the sort of very pro against more neutral ones. And I think, so that's one of the things I think, and that was actually sparked by a critique I got from from someone who who uh, reviewed my book and didn't like the kind of negative Tequin slant I took on cybernetics. And I was like, okay, I'm going to look at this. This is interesting to me. I want to see what there is then behind this. And so that was the, that kind of sparked that. I want to write a book on redundancy. Mm-hmm. And yes. so, and I feel like this is going to be a difficult hard book because I want to trace this from kind of Plato to Laruel. That's my, <laughs> that's my. <laughs> that's ambitious. Uh, yes, it's a lot of reading <laughs> ahead of me, but I think I've actually grappled with this for a very long time, you know, and I've actually written a little bit on this in terms of the a priori and in Deleuze and uh, Foucault, but I didn't quite call it redundancy because I think my thinking was still kind of gestating. And um, but it is it is a kind of it's a concept in the same way that difference and repetition were these like sort of pivotal concepts for Deleuze that has really started interesting me. And thinking about this in the kind of trajectory of philosophy and sort of specifically the kind of philosophies, you know, sort of older philosophies. But then as we get to the philosophies or what they call the philosophies of the concept and kind of because something new starts happening there, you know, whether you're thinking about sort of Bachelard talking about historical breaks or Foucault kind of more thinking in terms of, you know, genealogies and archaeologies and so on. And then Deleuze and Guattari, I think, do something different with it. And I I think that there's a kind of, as I'm reading, starting to read Laruelle, I'm starting to find something interesting there. Redundancy for me is something that, again, I think that there is a negative aspect to redundancy, which is obvious, you know, when you think of something being redundant or being obsolete, there's that kind of sense. But there's also the redundancy in the sense of more positive sense of, of what Deleuze and Guattari might call the, the refrain, which for them is not only, you know, for them there's that linkage between chaos and earth and cosmos. So it's it's a kind of cosmological thinking that is bound up for me in this concept. And so that's something, I don't know how long that's going to take, <laughs> but that I feel that that will be either my tomb or my tome. Uh, <laughs> we'll see where that goes. But I think that's the sort of bigger project. I guess that would be my very philosophical work. This idea, I guess, of Bifo calls it semio-capital. That's something that I find fascinating, this kind of like confluence of economics, technology, and information. That is what gets me excited. I mean, like I said, that's sort of why I kind of wound up here, <laughs> to be honest. So <laughs> both of those sound like very interesting. You know, we'd obviously, we definitely would love to have you back at a future date to discuss those. Definitely have enjoyed today's discussion. Mm-hmm. I just want to point out, I just noticed that you have you have a copy of Dune on your bookshelf. I am a sci-fi. Are you? Okay. Buff. <laughs> so, <laughs> I did. I read a lot of sci-fi, and it kind of got worse during COVID. Mm. I think it was my way of dealing with the sort of existential uncertainty. Mm-hmm. I just read more and more sci-fi, yeah. even though I do read a lot of sci-fi anyway. I guess that there's something really, you know, there is something quite magical. You know, I've I've always had this idea that I want to teach a course on sci- sci-fi and philosophy, philosophy through sci-fi. 
so when you were talking about Dune earlier, I really it really resonated for me because oh, I nice. just thought perfect. <laughs> when I read what was that Anne Leckie Ancillary Justice, the sort of war machine, I was mm. like, oh, I could teach my students the war machine this way. They would understand it because there was just something for me that happened. And I, I think that I think sci-fi has a really interesting, of course, there's also just a lot of space opera right stuff yeah. and and sometimes i even enjoy that but sure. um yeah but i think that there's there's really interesting sci-fi at the moment i think that there was you know in the sort of 60s 70s 80s and then there was a kind of lull for me where it just it just didn't excite me so much right and sort of recently again i just fallen in love with this genre all over again yes just for the possibilities you know and and so, yes, I do definitely have to. <laughs> I'm curious, have you read any of the other books in the series beyond the first one? No, me neither. No, gotcha. <laughs> the really interesting stuff philosophically begins in the third and the fourth books. Those are the ones it gets very sort of almost didactic for Frank Herbert is just basically spouting his kind of personal philosophy. <laughs> so if you can make it through the sort of, it's almost like the uh, Empire Strikes Back would be Dune Messiah because it really... He constructs the whole rise of Paul Moadib, etc. On a more important or relevant note for your even your work, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Dorothea Okowski's work, but she has that book on Deleuze, Merleau-Ponty, and I forget, who else was it? Bergson? Bergson, yeah. But she draws... Yes, and she, I, she, I haven't read it. Gotcha, okay. But you are familiar, because she. I, the reason I yeah. bring it up is because she mobilizes the three-body problem to work out uh, some of that, at least early on in the book, which I thought was kind of something interesting and she kind of has that that's kind of her angle there but well, no, i'm definitely going to find it here and i like the notion of teaching philosophy and science fiction you know there's in the laura well that i'm co-translating with all oh, right with my friend rocco gangle we're revising it slowly but we're at this section towards the end of the book where he starts talking about what he calls uh philo fiction which is something yes, he's worked exactly. about yeah so you know that could be you know maybe that's within the parameters of what you'll be looking at with redundancy. But, you know, I definitely would love to have you back to talk more about how Deleuze and Guattari mobilize, especially Guattari mobilizes redundancy, which we focused on redundancies of resonance, which is obviously a part of the state form and perhaps more of the negative side, whereas yeah. Guattari too wants to propose these notions of redundancies of interaction that can possibly have these transformative effects too that, that are so important for the, we could say the cautious optimism of your work, right? <laughs> so, you know, that's definitely something I'm looking forward to in the future and, and has always fascinated me. We definitely look forward to that. And we want to thank you again for being generous with your time and spending time with us. It's been, it's really been uh, just a joy having you on today. Thank you. It's, it's been really lovely. You've sparked so many ideas for me. Oh, so nice. I'm going to go write them all down. We're, we're doing the Spinoza thing. We're increasing our power and potency. <laughs> yes, that's right. We're uh, <laughs> what a body can do. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, Chantel, thank you again for, for, for joining us today. And we'll be in touch. Uh, I know next week is about and around this time next weekend, the episode will, will come out. And so we'll let you know as soon as it does. And just really want to thank you again and i look forward to speaking to you again in the future thank you so much and once again thanks to chantelle gray for joining taylor and i on this week's edition of the machinic unconscious happy hour
including the ultimate form of security, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thank you.